because I'm a North Melbourne supporter. <laughs> and, I, and I've had something like 40 years of being on the lo- losing side predominantly. And I haven't had much to cheer about. But, you know, those kind of failures, those kind of losses are really temporary. You know, there's always next year, there's always hope for next season. That's the eternal optimist of the football supporter and so on. Um, but in the final analysis, it's only about this life. But when we talk about being on the winning side in this sense, it's about being on the winning side for eternity. It's about my eternal destiny. It's about my reward when I die. Those are the kinds of things that today's passage are about and I want us to think about this morning. Before I do that, though, I just want to give you a little update from a, a help point of view. And I've obviously not done this right because I just clicked. I'm sure I just clicked that once. Okay. I just want to give you a little update on the people that you're supporting uh, because there have been some developments this week. So first of all, on behalf of um, Juvenile and Dorcas, uh, they really appreciate your support for them. And there was extra support sent a few weeks ago from this church for them with their expenses associated with their recent travel costs and so on. Uh, the great thing is that they were able to have a week away just as a couple uh, up in a place called Gesenyi, which is up in the north on the Congolese border. There's a big lake there, Lake Kivu. And, and uh, Joshua, sorry, Juvenile said that they had a great time together of prayer, reflection, really restoring their soul in that time. Uh, we were talking with him on Monday night. We do that most Monday nights. But recently we've had a couple of times with uh, Anthea and myself and Tony, my colleague, and his wife, Katrina, and we've met together with them as a couple. But they're doing really well and they really appreciate your prayers. I mean, it's obviously a lot of pain in their lives. Uh, Juvenile returned to work formally this week, though he has been working, but he's back at the office full-time and he's got a lot to do, let me assure you. So keep praying for them. Simon and Dorcas are also doing well. Dorcas's health is much better uh, and uh, uh, they really appreciate your prayers for them in that. Um, in the last two weeks, uh, we've sent some extra funds for uh, Simon's school that he's developing. Uh, 2000 came from this church for that. And then uh, through Graham and Lee's contacts, another 8000 was given by somebody else. So $10,000 is gone uh, to help establish the school and... Uh, Simon is really wrapped, very excited about that. Um, but he was going to Lusaka this weekend to get all of the furniture to be made for the school, but he couldn't go because his sister passed away. She was not unwell. It's quite a mystery as to why she died. She's 66 years of age. He said they just found her in the in her thatched cottage, and they'll never know the cause of death. He did say they were having a funeral on Tuesday, but both Graham and I have had videos of the burial already, so we're not quite sure. Maybe it's burial followed by a service. We don't really know. But please pray for them in their loss as well. Uh, I mentioned to him this morning when we were texting that I'd mentioned to you about the situation and that I was sure that you'd pray for them in their loss. So if you can remember to do that, they would appreciate it and I would appreciate it as well. Uh, sorry, Joshua and Sylvie. Oh, now I've really messed it up. I've gone the wrong way. Uh, Joshua and Sylvie are also doing really well. And they've recently taken into their home uh, an eight-year-old boy who's the son of a couple uh, at their their church that we know or have met a number of times. But alcoholism and mel- serious mental Ill- illness are real issues in that home. And um, for the boy to have any hope of a half-decent future, if I can put it that way, he needed somebody to take him in. So with the father's agreement, Joshua and Sylvia have taken... Eric in to give him a better chance at life. 
And this is really quite something because, uh, as you may or may not know, Joshua and Sylvie haven't been able to have children. Uh, they've been married for 19 years. It's a big thing in their hearts about being able to have their own biological child. But they said in the meantime they believe this is the child God has given them um, to care for. So, And I'm sure they'll do a, a wonderful job because they're both great people with kids. So you can pray for them in that as well. Joshua's very busy in the ministry and I'm currently working with him on um, being some help to him in terms of preparing some people for baptism in his church. So, And they've got particular issues around um, levels of understanding, um, I guess what I'd call cultural Christianity and those kinds of things that play into the difficulties of that in their circumstance. So Joshua would appreciate prayers for wisdom for that. So thanks for your support for these people. They're all great people doing a great work and really by extension you're part of their work as well. So thank you very much. And if I can uh, provide anybody with any information about any of them, I'm also happy to do that as well. So probably if you'd said to me, Peter, um, come and speak at Monty and you can speak on whatever you want, I probably wouldn't have chosen Isaiah 63, to be honest with you. But that's one of the great things about preaching your way through the Bible is that you have to deal with what's there. So it doesn't come as the preacher's agenda, it comes as the, the word's agenda, so to speak. And in this passage we have a very graphic picture of judgment. Um, God emerges from Bosra, which is in Edom, and Edom was one of Israel's enemies. And as you heard, his clothing is stained with the blood of his enemies. Now, typically, when we think of blood in association with, and this is a picture of Jesus as well, and we'll get to that, when we think of the blood, we typically think of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, right? But this is different blood. This is his clothes stained with other people's blood, not his own blood. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. So it's a very graphic picture. I don't think that we're to understand it literally. I don't mean that the Bible is wrong. That's not what I mean by saying we don't understand it literally. But this is a picture of God's judgment. God's judgment is real. Does that mean that God will end up walking around with people's blood on his clothes? I don't think so. But God's judgment is real. And so God and Isaiah have a conversation. And Isaiah says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained with crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? Who are you? I want to know who you are. And God says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So God introduces himself as the victorious one. He's dressed in the victor's clothes. He's got blood on his clothing. And he says, I'm the one who is righteous. I'm the one who knows what's right and true, what's right and wrong. I'm that one. And I'm the one who is mighty to save. So God introduces himself. And then the prophet asks, uh, why? Why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the wine press. Now, I've never been in a wine press, but I've seen the people doing this, right? Now, you can imagine getting splattered with the the, blood, the, uh, the the grape juice that's coming up as you're doing this. The closest I can get to this is helping some people um, put the mud on a house in Rwanda that they're building. 
And as you threw the mud at the house, and when I say mud, it was mud mixed with straw and cow manure. So that just, right? So you throw the mud, and of course an element of it splatters back, and you end up with stuff on you. Now, it was quite amazing, actually, because I ended up with stuff all over me, and all the young people doing this, not one of them had an ounce of stuff on them. I couldn't figure out that skill. But this is the kind of picture that as you're engaged in another action, something happens to you. So here, the picture is of people who are treading out the wine, and as they tread out the wine, the, the splatters come up, and their clothes get soaked in it. And God says, I've trodden the wine press alone from the nations no one was with me. He says, I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. So this is a picture of God's judgment. This is a picture of God being victorious over Israel's enemies and proving that he was victorious by the way that he was dressed and what was in his clothing and so on. So my question is, What's the immediate application of these people? What would, what would Isaiah's readers have thought when they read this? Well, really I think that God wanted them to know that he was the winner. He was the big winner in the universe. That whoever their enemies were, and whatever enemies of God there were, that God would be victorious. And that because God was the winner, so they were the winners. Now, this is a very important issue, I think. Often in church, in church life, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we go along for a while and then we feel like somehow we're one of the good guys, right? Well, actually, we're only where we are because Jesus has won. Because Jesus has won the victory and God, in His grace, has chosen to allow us to enter into that. So it's really because of God. And in this passage, God judges and defeats Israel's enemies. Verse 3. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Verse 6. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Well, that's a graphic picture of judgment, isn't it? But I want you to notice as well that not only has God judged these people that he alone is the judge. And I think this is an important issue. He says, I did this alone from the nations, this is verse 3, no one was with me. And again in verse 6, I trample the nations in my anger. So God here depicts himself as the one true judge, the one, the only one qualified to judge. I don't want to come back to that issue. So there's nobody with God dishing out the judgment, right? It's only God. There's no one with God deciding who gets judged and how they get judged. It's only God. So God is very much at the centre of this passage for these people. And I can imagine that this came to these people as a, a really great encouragement because they were they were people who had enemies. And God is saying to them, don't worry, in time I will deal with all of this stuff. Now, I think that's a good message for today. You know, we've we've prayed appropriately and we've thought appropriately about response to needy situations around the world. But this passage reminds us that one day God will deal with all of this stuff in his righteousness and in his way. And, of course, that will be when the Prince of Peace comes and he puts everything back into order again. We're not there yet. We're a long way from that 
Well, I shouldn't say we're not a long way. I shouldn't say we're a long way from that. We don't know when that will happen, but it appears like we're a long way from that, right? But it could happen tomorrow, right? Or now. That's the perspective that we need to have. But here God decides the timing of his judgment. He says in verse 4, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. So God holds the plan for the future in his hands. Remember that the disciples wanted to know from Jesus when he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel, right? And he says, I don't even know that. Only God knows that, right? That's all in God's hands. I heard the other day of some people uh, in a church. It's a ways from here. Not one of our churches. You can relax. Nobody you know, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, But some people who are convinced that because of the pandemic and all of that kind of thing, that from the start of the pandemic, Jesus is coming back in seven years' time. And they're building their whole lives around that. Now, I'm not saying that they're right or wrong, but I can say they don't really know for sure. Because Jesus said, nobody knows. Nobody in this life knows. Only God knows. And this reminds us that the future is in God's hands. Now, when you're you're oppressed and you're in difficulties and you've got enemies against you or you've got problems happening, don't you need to know that your life is in God's hands? When bad stuff is happening, don't you need to know that your life is in God's hands, even though the bad stuff is still happening? That's the kind of context we have here. And so I can imagine these people being greatly encouraged to know that in the end God would win and because God was the winner, they would win as well, even though they didn't know when that would happen. So there's an immediate application. But there is also a future application. And it's an application which we look to, and I just need to have a drink if you'll excuse me for a moment. I experienced the joy of COVID a few weeks ago, and it's left me with a husky voice <laughs> that I need to deal with at times. So the, the bigger application here is, yes, it's talking about God and God in their context, but as we know from uh, how Isaiah introduced the, introduces the Messiah, the person of Jesus, throughout the book, that really he's talking not only in immediate terms or short-range terms, but he's talking in long-term terms about Jesus Christ. And this reminds us that Jesus is the judge. Now we're just saying, Saviour, he can move the mountains. Oh, you like that bit, right? You know, everyone needs mercy, everyone needs compassion. Oh, Jesus is the judge. And that's what this passage is about as well. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 10, he talked there about, uh, excuse me, how God had appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. So the early apostles believed that Jesus was not only the one who came to save them, but the one who, because he'd been raised from the dead, God appointed as judge of all mankind. We know that great passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about how our attitude should be like Jesus, and he walks through how Jesus left heaven, he came to earth, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, and so on and so on. And it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name. That's part of what this is talking about that Jesus is given number one position in the whole universe and in that number, from that number one position, 
Uh, he will judge all of humanity. This reminds us, of course, that Isaiah paints the full picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus as the king, Jesus as the servant, and Jesus as the warrior. Now, I prefer all of the nice stuff about Jesus. Do you prefer the nice stuff about Jesus? You know, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants you to be his child. Jesus says, come to, to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is always with you. Jesus will take you to I love all of that stuff, right? I don't love this so much. And most people don't like to hear this side of Jesus. But Jesus is not just a one-dimensional character in as much as his father is not a one-dimensional character. In John chapter 1, when John introduces the person of Jesus Christ, he compares Jesus and Moses and he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we know the understanding of the law in the New Testament was that while it was given for people's good, they couldn't possibly uh, keep the law. And the law was, in a sense, draconian, and the way that it was applied in Israel at the time was draconian, and it was difficult for people, and it was harsh, but importantly, that it highlighted human sinfulness. Right. So that side of stuff came through Moses. But John says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So all of that stuff about truth, about the law, sits with Jesus Christ. But Jesus introduces the element of grace. The only way that I can describe this to you is that if you think of the cross, and you think of Jesus dying on the cross, and you think even with his arms outstretched, both the grace of God and the truth of God come to bear on the cross. Because the cross speaks to the truth about who we are. The cross speaks to the truth that I'm a sinful person at my birth, by nature, and by life, and the way I conduct myself. That's who I am. The cross speaks to that. And it speaks to the fact that, that, that I'm under the judgment of God. It shouts that. But it also shouts, God doesn't want me to stay there. That God's made provision for me so that I needn't suffer the consequences of being that person. But Jesus comes and he, he takes my place on the cross and he endures the punishment that God doles out for sin, takes my punishment in that place. So he brings together the elements of grace and truth perfectly in one person. So let's not be one-sided about our view of Jesus Christ. There are lots of passages in the New Testament about Jesus being the judge. Uh, in Acts 17, Paul says that in the past God overlooked such ignorance, and he's preaching at Athens, by the way, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day. Notice this, a God has set the day. We talked about God judging in his time, right? He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Notice that word justice. God introduces himself in Isaiah here as the one who's speaking in righteousness. True judgment, right? True justice. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And Paul introduces that man as Jesus Christ. Another verse about this is in uh, Romans chapter 2. When Paul introduces the idea of, in, in the first three chapters of Romans, about us all coming short of God's standard, no matter 
whether we have the law or don't have the law, whether we have conscience or no conscience, we're all guilty before God. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Then verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So God doesn't only judge the known. God doesn't only judge the obvious. God judges the unseen. How do you feel about that? I, uh, when I was a, a young pastor uh, in Tasmania, I used to visit um, a local motor dealership. One of the guys from that place had started, had become a Christian and started coming to our church and I would go in and have a coffee with him and have a chat with the other guys there. And the guy that used to manage that place uh, was an ex-brethren guy. And you might say uh, an ex-Christian, if I can put it in those terms. And he would always say to me, oh, you got a verse for us today, Peter? He had kind of this mocking sort of attitude. And I got a bit sick of this. <laughs> and one day when he said, yeah, you got a verse for us today? Oh, yeah, great verse. I was just reading the other day. Um, God knows the ways of man and judges the secrets and intents of his heart. He goes, oh. He goes to me, oh, that's a bit harsh. You know, like, well, you wanted the verse. That's my verse for you today, you know. But that's the reality, that God doesn't only judge the seen, God judges the unseen, and God's judgment is perfect. It kind of fits with the picture that we have this Isaiah 63 passage kind of fits with the picture that we have of Jesus in the book of Revelation. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. You notice, with justice he judges. Justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So we get who this picture is about. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this picture of God, Jesus here in Isaiah 63 reflects much more this revelation picture of Jesus as we have that. Now I don't intend for this to be, uh, oh sorry I should have, I forgot to change that. I was changing mine here but I didn't change yours. I was having a nice time reading but I hope you got the drift anyway. Now, so I'm emphasizing judgment at the moment. But let's remind ourselves that Jesus' priority in coming was not to judge us, but to save us. That's a very important issue. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then it goes on and says that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
So it's very important. He says, if you don't believe, you're condemned. But Jesus came to release you from that condemnation through your belief in him. Now, when it comes to this, God is fair. Because really our judgment depends on our choice. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my Father in heaven. What do I mean about this being fair on God's part? Well, your choice determines your destiny. God doesn't give you a destiny that doesn't reflect your choice. I was really struck by this when my father died when I was just 30 years of age. My father was a non-believer, though if you tried to witness to him, he pulled out a little card that said he got saved when he was 10, but there was no evidence of that in his life at all. And so, you know, if I was judge, he didn't make it. I'm glad I'm not judge, right? But I remember the night that he died and I rang my sister to tell her that he'd passed away. And she rang me back about one minute later and said, tell me that he'll be okay. So she's saying, oh, you're the religious professional. You can make the judgment about this. I want to know that he's gone to heaven. Please tell me so. Now, of course, you know that in grief, you're not ready for those kinds of questions. You're dealing with your own stuff. But I heard myself say something to her, which I think was God speaking to me and helping me. And actually has helped me all the days of my life ever since in relation to my father. I said to her, you know, I can't say that. But I can say that I do believe in a God who only does what is right and just and fair. And as I reflected on that, I realized, well, whatever happened to my dad is not God choosing. It's my dad's choosing. And I think that's very important for us to remember. Sometimes we want to hang those things on God, but actually it's we who make the choice about our destiny. And so my, my comfort in my, in relation to my dad is not that my dad has gone to heaven or not, but that God has judged him according to the choice that he's made. And I can be content in that space. So the question is, how do we apply these things to ourselves? Well, the first thing is that really we need to make sure that we ourselves are right with God so that in the judgment we're not judged for our sins. In First Timothy, Paul says that God our Saviour wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So how do you avoid the judgment? You avoid the judgment by casting yourself on what Jesus Christ has done and trusting him alone. Then beyond that, we need to enter into or experience the reality of what God has made possible for us through Jesus Christ. In in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uh, Paul talks about the benefits that come to us through believing in Jesus Christ. And I've just just done a little potted thing from the the passage there so you can just reflect on some of those. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he lists some of them here. For he's chosen us. He's adopted us as sons. He's redeemed us through his blood. He's given us the forgiveness of sins. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, 
which I understand to be that we're brought into the purposes of God. It's kind of amazing. And we're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, not only do we get free from judgment, but we enter into something much better and much greater. And because of that, we can live lives of purpose knowing that death is not the end. Some of my favourite verses in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the victory isn't in us. The victory is in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And because of that, because we live lives of purpose, we know that we'll be rewarded. Now, it's very interesting. We have this idea of the judgment of all the living and the dead. And it comes out in, in the book of Revelation where the books are open. Who, who's in the Lamb's book of life? Whose name isn't written there? There's a clear divide. Jesus talked about that in the New Testament in terms of the, the sheep and the goat, the wheat and the tares, all of those things. There's a clear division. But if I, if I just talk for a moment now, and this gets onto this, um, about those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because within that context, there's a reward system. Did you know that? Who will get rewarded? Well, let me just read the passage from 2 Corinthians 5, first of all, and we'll come back to that. Paul says, we're, all, we're always confident, and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I should have added another reference here, which would be 1 Corinthians 3, because that goes to not only what we do, but the motive with which we do it. Because, you know, you can do good stuff for wrong reasons. You know, like I could be preaching today, so you think I'm a good preacher. Well, that's not going to get any reward. Right? We need to be very clear. You can do the right stuff for the wrong reason. So it's what we do and the motive with which we do it. And God will judge us for that and we'll be rewarded accordingly. Now, what the rewards are, who gets what, I haven't got a clue. I do suspect, though, that some of the people that we have held up in life won't be rewarded in the way that we think and some will be quite surprised at the rewards that some people get because we don't know the real picture. But how I see it is like this. Last weekend I went to Little Athletics, not because I'm little, uh, with my grandchildren. See, that's one of those pastor-type jokes, shall I? See, I do it too, right? Uh, I went with my, my grandchildren and I noticed that every child who ran got a ribbon for participating. Okay? Some children got little discs because they came first, second or third. And that's how I see it with this matter of salvation. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will get the certificate of participation. Right? We'll get into heaven. But then within that construct, according to our motives and what we've done, God will give rewards. 
Now, only you, only you and God can make judgments about that in your own life. Certainly, I can't make judgments about that on your behalf. So let me conclude with a, a few things that come out in this passage. Firstly, we see here that God's judgment is good, it's right, it's fair. See, God says, I'm the only one who can judge. You like to judge? When we make judgments, we make judgments based on only a part of the picture. When God makes judgments, he makes judgments knowing the whole picture. You know, is that beautiful, those beautiful verses in Isaiah 55 where, where he says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God sees the full picture. Um, it was very interesting this morning driving here. I had another example of this with my car. It's got one of those lane correction things. And what I've noticed is it depends on the car being able to see the full picture. And for that reason, sometimes it can't see the lines or whatever, so there's, there's no lane assist. But then sometimes, as happened to me this morning, as I was driving along, it could see the white line down the middle, but there was no line on the left. So it wanted to push me over towards this right line this white line in the middle because it wanted me to be proximate to that line. But actually there was metres of space on this side that I could gainfully occupy, but the car didn't have the full picture. I had the full picture in that context. God is the driver of the universe who has the full picture. We can trust that he knows. Secondly, that judgment is most definitely coming. We see that here in this passage. The message in this passage is, my judgment is coming in my time. If that's true, and it is true, then we need to tell people. There's a whole eternity question here. We need to be telling people that Jesus is coming. And you should be ready for his coming. That Jesus loves you even though you're a person who is under God's condemnation. Jesus died for you. Jesus gave himself completely for you. Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians 5, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. That's part of the deal. If we really believe this is true, then we'll do something with this for other people's sake. And the third thing in this passage is that that judgment will be complete. Do you get this? You know, God brings everything back into order the way that it should be. No more Ukraine versus Russia, no more Muslim versus Christian, no more Syria, no more, we, we go on, okay? No more of that. What does that mean? If God's got the universe in his hands, what should that do for me? The answer is it should give me confidence. Not self-confidence, but God-confidence. So, you know, you, you face a pandemic, you face a business loss, you face a struggle, you face a political situation, you face turmoil, turmoil in your life that maybe never goes away or never appears to go away or seems like it will go away. Well, that's a time for casting ourselves upon God because God has everything in his hands. And at every juncture with all of these things, we make a decision about 
Who are we going to place our confidence in? Oh, yes, I put my faith in Jesus when I got saved in 1970-something, right? But now in this situation, I need to trust myself. No, we're meant to trust him all of the time. In Romans 8, Paul says, In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what is he talking about? Trouble, hardship, pain, persecution, difficulty. The whole human experience. So I want to encourage you today to put your life in the hands of the winner for salvation if you haven't done that already. And if you want to know how to do that, I'll be happy to pray with you about that later on. Josh or other leaders here, I'm sure. Only too happy to help you with that. Because that will mark the beginning of a whole new journey and a new trajectory for your life. But then as people who have believed, to put our lives in the hands of the winner. To trust him. To trust that he has everything in his control. To trust him for the things that we can't see and we can't do. To trust that he has the bigger picture in place. And though life sometimes seems unfair, that his judgments are still right and just and true. In conclusion, I'd like to read the words of Psalm 98. They won't be up on your screen. But these are words, I think, of somebody who understood that their lives were in God's hands, that God was the winner, that they were beneficiaries of his victory and they could be content in that place. And I would like for this, I'm going to treat this today as a closing prayer and then Josh will come and lead us. Even though there's some instruction in here, but you'll get the idea, I think. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant songs with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the earth, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Peter. Uh, just as we conclude um, the the kids' ministry.